So you are here for something somewhat historic. This is the final episode that I'm going to be recording in this abode that I have called the the home base, the studio here in Midtown Toronto, that has been home for, by my measure, somewhere in the neighborhood of 241 episodes. Wow. And you're the last guest. You're 242. Oh my gosh. Oh, now I feel the pressure a little bit. <laughs> I got to bring my A game to this thing. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, the I, in the new space, I'm going to have like a different setup and a better setup. And who knows what that's going to do for the energy. I, I'm worried that like, maybe I'm like leaving my mojo here. But I, I thought to myself, you know, if, if I'm going to, I'm going to say goodbye to this space, I got to say goodbye with, with a good guest. So welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to episode 268 of the matinee cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, the matinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective. The end of summer always feels melancholic. There's memories of days when you would go back to school, perhaps summer camps that ended, friends that drifted apart, or the embers of a summer fling that finally cooled. That's at the best of times. This year, in part because of the world being in a state that it is, and in part because of the things around here being so topsy-turvy, I am feeling even more melancholic that summer is ending. And if we were all out at the lake this weekend, I'd be the guy still out by the fire after everyone has gone to bed, or maybe the guy on the dock before anyone else has gotten up. That's just where I am these days, folks. That said, I can't think of someone I'd rather be spending the end of this bittersweet summer with than today's guest. He truly understands these sort of feelings and has a way of expressing them in a way that makes you believe that it'll be okay. September will be okay. Autumn itself will be okay. And soon, another summer will be upon us. His writing can be found at Voices and Visions. His voice can be found at the Directors Club podcast. And his influence can be felt all over the damn place. Direct from Chicago, Jim Leskowski's here. How are you, Jim Leskowski? Oh, wow. What a wonderful introduction. That's so sweet. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be back again. And what? yeah, I, I tend to feel pretty good about going into the fall season because... I don't know. I'm I'm a hoodie kind of guy, and I also look forward to the Halloween season. You know, I mean, I just feel like the the humidity starts to to subside. I I, I feel like going for more walks and watching the leaves change. And obviously, you know what it means: better movies. This is are true. Coming. This is very true. I guess I just I I don't like that transition. I just wish I could kind of like go to sleep mid August, wake up and it's mid September, sure. and somebody tells me, "Hey, it's time to get out your leather jacket." I just don't want to be there for Labor Day. Labor Day, that that little realm, it's never fun. Couple notes off the top of the show uh, before we get into the main event. So first things first. Um, around the time this episode drops, will mark. 14 years of me writing sporadically uh, these days at the matinee and its predecessor, the dark matinee. Um, I was talking before we went on air with Mr. Leskowski and how neither one of us anticipated doing this for as long as we have. Um, And even though I don't write so much these days and it's more my, my voice that I I put out there into the world. um, I do count myself really lucky uh, to have done this for this long and for anybody to have stopped by for even a minute. Um, I've met some amazing people this way and I, I'm truly, truly grateful for, uh, for everything um, that I've, had come my way in those 14 years. Um, certainly, first and foremost, the friends that I've made, including uh, today's guest. Um, so thank you uh, for for supporting the space 
in in one form or another for 14 years i am i'm truly truly overwhelmed with uh, gratitude um next uh, as i mentioned at the beginning it is the final episode that i'm recording in this space and um that's part of the reason why scheduling seems a little weird if you follow the twitter feed and you saw that this episode was locked uh well before it actually went into the feed that's why because i'm in the midst of a move um it also has me feeling uh slightly melancholic because uh, I'm looking to my right at a balcony that I will no longer be recording on. I'm, I'm sitting on a bed that I will no longer be recording on and all of these things, uh, you know, have an energy in the show. So I'm really, really hoping I don't screw things up. But if things sound uh, different the next time this uh, a regular show comes into your feed, um, that will be why, because there will be a whole new space and a whole new energy um, that uh, that'll come with uh, a new apartment. So Yay. Uh, last but not least, this is uh, the end of an, another season for the matinee cast. Uh, in case you're new here, uh, a few years ago, I started taking a little bit of time off from the show, which is mostly the month of September. I still drop audio postcards during TIFF, and I think there will be one or two of those this year. But generally speaking, the end of August and the month of September are kind of a weird time for movies. Um, so I don't uh, anticipate dropping another episode until the beginning of October. It's just a chance for me to reload and and just kind of get my bearings a little bit, especially this year when, as I mentioned before, I'm moving. So if you don't see an episode again hitting your feed um, for the next four or five weeks, don't be afraid. I'm not going anywhere. I will be back. Um, we hope to have some TIFF audio postcards for you, but we'll be back in early October. And there's a lot of cool stuff coming in October. So please do um, keep us in your feeds and keep us in your in your alerts. And we'll be back in the autumn. Wow. Well, here's to moving on and moving forward. It's you know, a I mean, lot all at once, man. Like, yeah, I'm excited for you, though, because change can be really good. It's scary. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But. Yeah. And it that's that's the thing is that it, it's all it's like it's a lot all at once. But by the time this show comes back in October, like the greatest bit of topsy turvy of of certainly of my, my life for the last little while will be behind me. And uh, hopefully I can put some energy into moving forward but on yeah. on this episode on episode 268 we will be discussing annette we'll be flipping the record over the play the other side but first we need to learn more about jim this is know your enemy Jim first appeared on episode 140, where we discussed Pixar's Inside Out. On that episode, we learned the first movies he'd ever seen in a theater were a double feature of E.T. the Extraterrestrial and Follow That Bird. The last film he'd seen at the time was Manglehorn. His worst film that he'd ever seen is something called The Doom Generation. The unseen classic or essential is Dr. Javago. Still? Yes. Wow. The, well, I was uh, supposed to see it on the big screen. I know, I know, it I just, know. It's, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen yet. It's a very muted wow. It's it's not like mm. a dude. It, it's just a wow. The film he wished he made is, to no surprise, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Jim returned on episode 169. We talked about Martin Scorsese's Silence. We learn the film everybody else hates but he digs is something called How Do You Know? The film everybody else likes but he doesn't is La La Land. The last movie to make him cry is A Monster Calls. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by David Cross. And the film he was watching next was something called Requiem. Then in episode 243, we discussed Onward and made jokes about not touching our face because there was a pandemic coming. 
<laughs> Man, there's an episode that has not aged well. We learned the wow. film that made Jim's love of film turn a corner is Pump Up the Volume. His first date movie was The Man in the Moon. His sick day movie is Midnight Run. The last film to leave him speechless was Phantom Thread. And his epitaph from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind would be, I'm just exactly where I want to be. So it's time for round four. Jim, sir. <gasps> What is a film you really dig, but you never want to watch again? Well, I was tempted to go with a film that uh, I decided is better off to discuss during the other side. Uh, but I, I, I imagine, you know, when when people are presented with this question, they'll opt for one of those depressing experiences that, you know, you, you experience it in a movie. You don't want to put yourself through it multiple times. It's too dark. It's too heavy. But, you know, I don't mind getting bummed out over and over again as long as the movie's good. You know, that's how I've always felt. Like, if it's if it's a great movie and it's conveying some sort of genuine emotion and I'm having, like, an empathic experience, I don't mind. But I am positive I will never want to watch Irreversible Oy. ever again. I'm uh, <laughs> reasonably sure that's come up before. I would think so. I mean, it's and yet at the same time, like I really admire that director, their their intensity and audacity and just the fact that something like that is it exists. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Like there are movies out there like The Human Centipede or something where I'm just like, you know, I almost I don't know. It's just you try too hard to be weird it's not going to click <laughs> with me, but like, like this, I, it, the technique and the choice to sort of play around with the memento like narrative, mm -hmm. you know, was starting at the end and then ending at the beginning was really something special, but that opening and certainly the extended sexual abuse sequence is not something I can put myself through. <laughs> and I don't expect a lot of people would make this a yearly tradition of any kind. No. It's just so heavy. Yeah. If one were to take the story in order, you could just tap out early. Mm -hmm. You know, you could you right. could tap out three quarters of the way through and say, OK, I know what happens here. I don't need to see the end. It's kind of like, um, you know, I don't I've never actually answered this question for myself. But one answer that would probably be towards the top, if it's not my actual answer, is Requiem for a Dream. And oh, that sure. movie, it's just because of the ending. And, you know, it's the thing is like if it's on or if I happen to like get the get a get an urge to go back and, and study it for a little bit, I can always just end it early. But, you know, you can't do that with Irreversible. You have to like jump past the opening 20 minutes, which are really the ending 20 minutes. I don't actually have a track record of who has answered what to this question, but I'm reasonably sure that that film has come up for this more than one time. I would think so. And, uh, and, and every that... time I'm, I'm like, yep totally get it <laughs> yeah once is enough even even though i like the film and i admire it and certainly you know it, i don't know if that director has been covered on director's club by the other hosts that were filling in for a few years or not i don't think so but that 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 would be a challenging filmmaker to binge no kidding. on for sure yeah, no kidding uh similarly actually what is a film that genuinely freaked you out and I'm sure lots of people talk about movies like, uh, you know, Psycho making them not, you know, they don't want to take a shower after watching it or Jaws making them not wanting to go swimming at a beach. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I think for as long as I can remember, I have always been an active dreamer. Like I, I would even say pretty much on a daily basis, I will have 
a, a memorable dream or a really intense dream. And sleep is something I look forward to. But part of me also, like when my when my head hits the pillow, I'm going, what crazy movie is my brain going to play for me tonight? Because uh, I just I still have surreal, vivid dreams. And I wonder if this has anything to do with, you know, the fact that this happens is because I, I when I was eight years old, I snuck down to my parents' basement and I just watched the first half of A Nightmare in Elm Street. <laughs> and that was enough. All right. The, the first the first murder scene. You're done. Th- that young. I was like, I'm turning this off. I'm done. I eventually went to finish it. <laughs> but I, it's to this day, it's, you know, I, obviously I'm an adult now and I can s- sort of separate things a bit. But just the idea of it, just the idea of I'm not, I'm not going to wake up because this guy is going to kill me, you know, and I still have Freddy nightmares. It's ridiculous. I'm an adult. I mean, it's, I still have it's that thing where, you know, like you started this off by talking about like psycho in the shower. And the whole idea is it's a place where you are just unconditionally vulnerable right in your yeah. in your sleep you have no control the, there's an old joke somewhere that your dreams are your own head screwing with you um <laughs> so yeah you, you know like that that idea that you're in a nightmare and you can't get out of it um it's it's just ripe for storytelling so it, it doesn't surprise me that that's one that it would be and and yeah you know what like even as you grow older sometimes it's like you can try to tell yourself it's only movie it's only movie it's only movie but those those feelings of loss of control they really make you feel uncomfortable in ways that you know you just you may not want to deal with yeah your subconscious is probably processing all these different emotions that you're experiencing while you're awake you know, and even if you're watching a movie, you're, you're you're taking in all these images, and your subconscious is probably going to remember, especially very specific, creepy things that you saw. Yeah, and, and that's why I always, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people with anxiety disorders that don't watch horror movies, and I completely respect that, and I understand why. And certainly, a lot of these things can be triggering, but I I, I tend to go back to horror movies as catharsis, and I think that's a reason why. A lot of people love these types of movies too, um, but you know, it's I've just I've had crazy dreams, and you know, I've I've been stabbed in a dream, and I feel the physical pain uh, of being stabbed. But to my recollection, I've never been stabbed in real life. Yeah. So I always wonder, how do you know? Does, yeah, yeah. Is my brain just guessing yeah. basically what it would feel like? <laughs> your your imagination is incredible, and I mean, the crazy yeah. thing is that first one is sort of ramshackle comparison Mm -hmm. to where the series would eventually go, where the genre would eventually go, where visual storytelling and film would eventually go. You know, like it's, it's a Bart Simpson joke that the first nightmare on Elm street is pretty tame by today's standards. It is to your experience. Certainly when you, when you first saw it as a boy and even now it's, it's messed up. It's, you know, yeah, you can, you can see the strings of the effects, but that doesn't make them any less disturbing in terms of a concept. Let's flip the script a little bit. And it's, they're, they're kind of a match set, but on, on opposite ends of the spectrum. What is a film that always makes you laugh? Well, I know you've had the great Corey Pierce on your show in the past. Once or twice. And, yeah. And, and one thing him and I bonded over was our love of the comedy troupe, the state and everybody that sort of came from that 
uh, click. I I gotta say I've tried to follow their subsequent films or shows or whatever they've done, particularly the films of director David Wayne. And I'm going to go with one of his newer films that I wish more people talked about. And it's called They Came Together from 2014. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, <laughs> right. Do you not find this movie funny? Uh, I Well, okay. Hit and miss? I can I can respect if it's hit and miss. See, this is why I, I match these two together. Because the same as how what scares people varies from person to person what makes people laugh varies from person to person uh i i smirked more than i laughed uh when i saw that movie and it's so it's from uh what is it like four or five years ago now yeah maybe seven really yeah it's 2014 oh my god um by the by the troop that you're talking about and this troop is loaded with very very talented people um you know, uh, H. John Benjamin, um, uh, Amy Poehler, obviously, Adam Scott, uh, Paul Rudd. Uh, there's w- way, way more, but I'm just I'm blurring on like a lot of the people that are in this. But a lot of very, very, very funny people uh, make up this man's movies. And this particular movie, they came together. It's just a straight up send up of romantic comedies uh, starring Amy Poehler and Paul Rudd at their polarist and ruddiest. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's okay for, for me. Okay. That's, that's fine. But, that's fine. But you know, like I, I know, like you say like that, that troop and that team and, and that like whole, um, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood of comedians, because that's the same people who are like responsible for wet, hot American summer. Right. Oh yeah. yeah, the 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 fans of this of this team are legion, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know is now do you, like do you have a favorite bit in that movie? Well, definitely the bartender moment. Um, just I, I like that to me was kind of the old school Abbott and Costello, or just like something something that the Zucker Abrams Zucker team would have done. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the Naked Gun movies, because I grew up watching those movies with my dad. And I think there's there's a soft spot for good spoof and parody movies. I'm not talking about like, you know, disaster movie yeah, or yeah. epic movie or all that stuff. It's 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 just being clever and funny and inventive. And I know that um, David Wayne co-wrote that with his buddy, Michael Showalter, who has gone on to have a pretty successful career uh, making kind of kind of his own romantic comedy with the big sick right right you know i think i and i i just i don't know i found mostly everything funny but then again i find just about everything david wayne has done to be pretty funny even some of the weaker stuff sure so it's just he's on my wavelength in terms of sense of humor and i just think that that movie is uh is pretty great and michael shannon shows up in a great cameo at the end and i want him to do more comedy oh i forgot (laughs) about that cameo too the one thing i will say that i did get a bit of a laugh at is as somebody who takes his coffee black and, and, and who, who, who can be in and out of a coffee shop in in like, you know, three minutes. Um, I did appreciate the scene where they're both in the coffee shop and they're like at first they're like making fun of people making these big convoluted orders. And then they go on to like each make this big convoluted order. And it's like, yep. so like, yeah, pour in the latte, then throw that out, then put in half an uh, espresso. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thanks for that. 
So, oh yeah, all right, yeah. There's a lot of great moments for sure. I'll give it another go. Maybe you know, maybe it'll maybe it'll tickle me a little bit more the second time around. Keeping in mind that this is usually only an 85 or 90 minute show, Jim Laskowski, what is your favorite movie soundtrack? Rushmore. Oh. Okay, that's I know, easy. It almost, yeah, it almost seems like a cliche answer at this point. But I, I mean, I say that maybe my circle of friends would likely concur with me on this one because, like, I mean, I don't know. I still get. I, it's a fun. It's funny that I've seen this movie. I don't know twenty times now, and I still get goosebumps at certain moments. And I think that's just because Wes Anderson knows how to complement his story so well with music mm-hmm. in ways. That, and, and these aren't. And these are some deep needle drops here from the who or the kinks it's not like you know it's my generation by the who or something it's a rare live epic song they did uh and that moment where max fish fisher starts sabotaging herman and you know that song by the who starts playing right i just that's pure cinema that's pure joy that's everything that makes me smile and i just think like especially what Wes Anderson did with with music with Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums, really, I I am just in awe of. So I always go back to Rushmore. You know, there there are certain directors out there that are the soundtrack is like an an added character. You know, I'm thinking of like Scorsese and Tarantino, obviously. You know, like the, these these types of people who have just like Cameron Crowe. Um, you know, where where like the soundtrack is. A, a a very long conversation. I call these people are all like the anti Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think where he, where Anderson is concerned, like his don't get me wrong, like he's not always reaching for the deepest of cuts. There's a lot of times where he's had some big singles in his in his soundtrack. So he's you know he's used Ruby Tuesday and and mm-hmm. and Starman, you know, as a for instance. But yeah. Along with that, he'll you like he'll find some songs you either haven't ever heard of or you haven't played in a minute and he'll assign it like the, like a lot of the great soundtracks do, he'll assign it new meaning. That that's what he does so well. He blends the obvious choices with the kind of quirkier cuts and finds a way to get them all to play together perfectly on the playlist. Not to mention that this guy early in his career decided to buddy up with Mark Mothersbaugh and, you know, from, from Devo and get him to score his movies. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, it's like, but I think that's, that's what you're saying is exactly right. When you can recontextualize a song and associate it now in a whole new way. Like, I mean, come on, tiny dancer by Elton John. Yeah. You, you hear it and you automatically think of everybody singing it on a bus now. Yeah. And I, I think with a song like cat Stevens, the wind, if I hear it, I think of Max Fisher flying a kite. And then we cut to Bill Murray's very, very sad face <laughs> <laughs> or even just like, I mean, making time by the creation. Like I'm sure that oh, I'm sure yeah. that was a hit in its own little way, but now it is officially like, you know, the, the, the Rushmore montage song. All right. Very good choice. Like I certainly cannot argue with that. And, you know, even though like, I think some of the other soundtracks I'd probably lean on a little bit more. I know that's blasphemy with Anderson fans that it's, it's it kind of like <laughs> Rushmore and Tannenbaums are kind of held up as like the alpha and Omega, but I'll, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm the guy in the, over in the corner being like, 
what about Darjeeling Limited? And everybody just shoots me a look. So, oh, there's a lot of great kink songs in there. Yeah, that. that's right. See, sure. see, that's yeah, that's yeah. a good soundtrack. Uh, last but not least for now, Jim Leskowski. What is a film you love but seemingly nobody has heard of? So I've had an actor director on my show several times to talk about underrated films, <laughs> and his name is Keith Gordon. And you know, most people would probably know him as the main star from Christine, and he starred in a very interesting movie. Uh, I think it came out in 85, 86, and it's called Static. Okay. It's, it's directed by Mark Romanek, and he also went to went on to do Never Let Me Go right. way later. Oh, yeah. yeah. But it's just really hard to find. I think it was only released on VHS, and I actually own the VHS. Uh, <laughs> That's becoming a theme it, when I get you on this show. You realize that, right? I know, yeah. It seems to it seems to keep happening, but it's it's a weird little indie film about this kind of introvert who works at a crucifix factory and he invent he invents a device that he claims can show what heaven looks like. And <laughs> the majority of people that come by to take a look at the screen are only seeing static. Okay. So He's trying to figure out, well, maybe I need to find some really religious people who, you know, and it, and it sort of becomes this crazy movie about confirmation bias. And just like this idea of we strongly believe in something and we want other people to believe it, but it's not always going to happen that way. It, it might play very interestingly at a time like now. I was just for, about uh, to say that. Like I've, I've <laughs> never seen, vaccine. yeah, I like, I've never seen this movie and congratulations. I've never heard of this movie, but you describe it that way. And I'm thinking, Oh man, I can't imagine what watching it for the first time right now would feel like. It kind of reminds me of something Lynch would have done. Mm-hmm. I think it's more accessible than a Lynch movie, but it has a lot to say about spirituality and kind of the way we perceive reality and things like that so that's kind of my jam in general that sort of theme is just like what is what does this all mean and why are we all here that kind of stuff so it's a very existential movie but i think the reason why it's not easy to track down is because the director has kind of disowned it like really yeah he's kind of like "Eh, that's not my strongest work i'm not very proud of it but when i talked to keith gordon about it like he's very proud of the work and that he did in that movie and i think he should be and i think people even if you have to find uh other ways of locating certain things on the internet there might be (laughs) might pop up on youtube one day i hope i yeah you know know, I, i think that a lot of the time a lot of these movies their their scarcity comes down to uh, the rights just kind of evaporating. Like this is a film that was created in 1985 by a production company called NFI. And I'm 99% sure that NFI is no longer in business. So what happens <laughs> to the work that they had and the rights that they held? Well, it just kind of goes into limbo and, and, and it gets kind of snapped up or maybe not snapped up. And then these things just kind of linger. We were, t- again, we were talking off air before this show about, my guest from two or three episodes ago, Mariah Gates, and she was just on Twitter the other day talking about how she's seen films get like five or six restorations, you know, like just every time that there's a new medium, you hear about a new restoration, a new restoration, new restoration. She says, don't get me wrong. That is wonderful. And it's great that we are preserving a lot of these classics, but there is a whole host of titles that are just lingering in limbo that could really, really do with a transfer to something so that they, that they remain accessible. And when I hear about a story like this and a film like this and, and creatives like this, like, like Keith, 
it, it really makes me believe that, you know what, there's there's a lot of stuff in slightly more modern history that that probably really does have some value and can really do with some restoration. Well, thank you. That is more about Jim. We'll learn more about him when he comes by the next time. As we move into the new slang for this episode, um, generally speaking, I do try to keep conversation around here spoiler free. However, uh, the story of Annette includes a rather large plot point that happens around the end of the first act that's kind of important and kind of hard not to talk about. So please do consider yourself warned that we are going to talk about Annette as a complete uh, and, 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 you know, full on spoilers. Um, And we do hope that you'll join us. This film is dropping on Amazon prime. So if you have Amazon prime, you'll be able to see it uh, very easily. Jim and I have uh, already seen it and we're here to talk to you about it. It's Annette right after this. So may we start. So may we start It's time to start My time to start They hope that it goes the way It's supposed to go There's fear in them all But they can't let it show They're underprepared But that may be enough The budget is large But still it's not enough So may we start Annette is directed by Leo Carax. It's written by Ron and Russell Mayle. They are the band Sparks, along with Carax himself. It stars Adam Driver, Marion Cotillard, and Simon Helberg. Annette is the story of Henry and Anne. Henry, Adam Driver, is a provocative stand-up comic who falls hard for Anne, that's Cotillard, the opera star. After a whirlwind romance and a fast engagement, the two become parents to baby Annette, played in this film by a puppet. Yes, a puppet. It's not long after that that the wheels come off in spectacular fashion. Anne's star continues to rise, and Henry seems to just lose his mojo. A public accusation of his past abuses just make everything a whole lot worse, and suddenly Henry is becoming unhinged. This leads to a private cruise where a drunken Henry pushes Anne overboard and faces life alone with baby Annette. Then things get really weird, because after the death of her mother, Annette develops a talent for singing, and soon becomes a child star like few the world has ever seen. Within Annette, there is a long moment where attention is drawn to what Anne does as an opera star. Specifically, she spends a lot of her time dying and a lot of her time bowing. Opera is much more complex than that, but the statement isn't entirely untrue. Within the world of opera, there is indeed a lot of dying and a lot of bowing. So along comes Annette. Which, much to our surprise, is less a musical and more, by and large, an opera. So, pop quiz hotshot, what does this film do best? The dying, the bowing, or something altogether different? This is a tough movie to talk about. Yeah. And there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. And uh, it's a movie that I wish I loved because <laughs> we all walk into a movie hoping we're going to love it. I think this movie succeeds with its ambition its intention i think it was the the late great ebert who said a film teaches you how to watch it yeah (laughs) and when this movie started i was like okay i am so on board i'm ready for joy this might be an alternate universe version of la la land with charismatic actors and instead of jazz music it sparks right and uh when it was over i kind of went huh 
I didn't really feel much joy watching that movie. No. That really surprised me because I just watched the Sparks Brothers documentary and that was full of joy. Yep. Uh, so I realized these are two vastly different experiences, vastly different directors. I felt kind of a disconnect. It's funny because like it felt like I'm on the, I'm on the pinnacle here with the beginning. I'm like I'm get almost feeling that euphoria and then it just sort of peters out to the point of indifference by the end where I was just like, I don't care that much about Henry <laughs> and whether he's suffering or alone or not, yeah. to be honest. And it's, and it's not, and it's not Adam driver's fault because no. he's actually great yeah. as always. To answer my own question, I think this movie is so very much about the bowing. This movie mm at like almost at the end of every number or sometimes even in the middle of every number seems to look right out at us and be like, we know what we're doing. We know we're doing it well, you know, please applaud longer because we want to bow again. Um, I don't know if you or any of the listening to this has ever actually been to an opera or, or, you know, but that, that part of it is true. Like the, the applause and the bows at the end are, almost absurd and that is very much within this movie of how many times it seems so very very proud of itself which is so strange i mean i would love to hang that all on the director because this director has got some weird stuff in his filmography but i Mm -hmm. cannot blame this entirely on him because this is as i mentioned a screenplay by Ron and Russell Mail, the brothers who are the band Sparks. And as we learned in that Sparks documentary, they've had this musical script and score on their desk for a long time and have wanted to make it for a very, very long time. Now, I don't know how much of it has changed since what they originally had, but this is something that they created and they brought to Karak. So as much as I want to say the weirdo who gave us Holy Motors has given us another bit of weirdo, it's not him. And 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 that's the thing is for, for the Sparks boys to be out there being like, huh? Hey, huh? Hey, like after every number or sometimes during every number, it's a really head scratching bit of cinema. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't break the fourth wall constantly yeah. you know, like wasn't that great yeah. it's singing to itself but not really singing to its audience and connecting in that way like it's it's it does feel like a movie that's kind of in love with itself in ways that are uh cloying and annoying and not necessarily engaging and that's really disappointing because like i said that opening really sets you up t- for some high expectations and like they're ready to, they're ready to go and oh yeah so am i i've seen this point more than once and it was where i wanted to begin like you know like it part of me if this seems shocking but let's start at the beginning we get this so may we start so may we start we get this wonderful number where everybody is just in a studio and singing and then they just start walking and singing and talking and singing and it is joyous and catchy and lively and everything you want a major original musical to be like if if the film ended there i could have gone home happy I could have gone home, you know, thinking I just risked some COVID and dropped down $18, but boy, was that worth it. Because that number is just, 
It's 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 exactly what you expect out of something like this. And then we kind of have to experience this almost Andrew Dice Clay like stand up comedian, not just once, but twice yeah. through a, practically a full set that kind of kills the pace for me. And is it's not very funny. Well, and, that's, and I don't know if that's the intent either. Uh, yeah. And I mean, and that's where things get interesting, because the first time we go through this. So you're talking about driver's character, um, the the, you know, very, very cleverly named Henry McHenry. And take a bow, boys. He does this one man show. And the first time he does it, it actually like it's not it's certainly not joyous. Like it's it's a it's a real left turn after. So may we start. But it has staging and it has energy and it has yeah. you know like like it really reminded me of uh in the in the movie chicago there's mm. billy flynn's uh controlling of the press you know it really reminded me of that where you have the audience and the the performer on the stage and there's this musical interplay between them and he's using a mic that has a chord but it's because the chord is part of his choreography and you know there's metaphors in that about how he's to be tethered to things okay cool neat and then like you say we got to do it again and when we do it again it's really just like first of all it's this contrast of when mm-hmm. this guy is like really at the top of his game versus when he's just having a complete off night and his complete off night is just absolutely gross. It's not pleasant. I know it's not. I mean, he's basically having a crisis uh, and self-destructing, certainly having some very me too like allegations against him. And, you know, all that, just kind of killed the vibe a bit. I mean, I was even, I was on board even for the rather repetitive, but still catchy. We love each other so much sequence. Uh, They they say that about 37 times, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm fine with. And, you know, certainly where it goes is very interesting. I think I wanted more uh, conviction in, in this couple and at least, Marion Cotillard is not given nearly as much as Adam Driver, and obviously no. that's for a reason. At the same time, we're really just focused on yet another toxic celebrity culture kind of story. Uh, you know, it, it it felt like you know this is their take on a Star Is Born, more or less. You know, yeah. And I mean, this is where the history of this project works against it because they have, as I said earlier on, they've had this film on their desk for a very, very long time. They wanted to make it in the '90s with Tim Burton, but you know, right. a lot has happened since the '90s. A lot has happened since five years ago, and what played then does not feel the same now. Like. I wager in the 90s watching Henry McHenry break down on stage and basically plead for the life of his career, because that's basically what happens is when he goes on stage and and just completely craters, it's after he's basically been accused of abuse and in a number that almost feels tacked on for a, a whole musical number about sexual abuse allegations. Uh, that is a plot point that is pretty quickly dropped um and never comes up again for for something that that was the the source of a whole musical number but watching it now 
in light of who we've seen do that very thing out in the real world like this in 1990 something would have seemed like absurdist farce whereas now it's like i've watched comedians do this very thing and Ryan Adams is doing this on social media right now. Oh, is he? Now. Oh, he's yeah. He's, and he's trying, really upsetting. He's trying to swim off his iceberg. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, man. please, I still want to have a career. Oh, please, yeah. poor me, poor oh, me. Oh lordy. And I'm like, uh, no. rolling my eyes constantly. But I mean, you know, the the thing is, is that in amongst all of these very unsavory themes and these really kind of herky jerky tones that it takes, we got to admit, like, the staging of this movie is kind of incredible i mean I, again like there's so many things that i feel like oh this if only this was completely fully realized as opposed to strangely half-baked and that's kind of what's funny to me is that they this was the story that they've had for eight years mm-hmm. I, you know and there's certain moments even the birthing sequence i you know i was like this is cool yeah. this is nice yeah. I, you know i and like you said there's incredible production design there's credible staging you know the certainly the the moment involving them being on a boat in a storm is something i think uh, this director goes back to uh time and time again and he certainly has a love of music in throughout his filmography i mean oh yeah that that orgasmic dance to David Bowie's modern love in um, Mavis Sang. Mm-hmm. I would never know how to say that one, but, <laughs> Close you enough. know, um, yeah. Uh, Greta Gerwig kind of borrowed that for Francis Ha. Yep. <laughs> and of course the show stopping accordion number in Holy Motors. And that's the thing is like, I think of his movies when I, the, the few that I've seen as having these great moments, yep. but never like fully coming together for me. And that's almost the same case here with Annette for me is like there are moments from like this is great yeah. this is cool i'm enjoying this part like late in the late going we get this kind of beatlemania type montage where, where they're taking baby annette from from city to city to city or even before that when we really bring helberg as the conductor into the fray and he's delivering a monologue while he's conducting a symphony and the camera is just basically like swirling around him and every once in a while he excuses himself because he has to conduct a really intricate part you know like those are moments where i'm like this is why i go you know like the, the, this is this is something that's really lively and something that's got a lot of energy and a lot of creativity and some really really intricate staging but then we you know basically just go back to Henry McHenry moping for another 20 minutes or worse plotting like how to use the next person he wants to use because she's a puppet. Well, there's, I mean, okay. So there's that. Like I I was going to bring that up in a second, but let's just jump right to it. So, yeah, Baby Annette in this movie from the get-go is a puppet. And we can make all the Clint Eastwood jokes we want here. <laughs> but first of all, yeah, it, it is extremely on the nose that the baby is a puppet and the father is a puppeteer. Okay, cool. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if it actually was a baby, there's no way it would have worked. There's no way they would have been sure. able to do it. If they had a VFX the baby into, into like some sort of like animation thing, we would have been here like crying about how the baby doesn't look real. So let's just go straight to the baby is a puppet because the baby is a puppet. I mentioned this earlier is that when movies try so hard to be weird, it kind of turns me off. Like just be naturally weird somehow. I guess an example would be maybe somebody like Tim Burton who 
especially early in his career, was quirky, was weird. But there was kind of this sincerity and genuineness, especially to something like, you know, Pee Wee and Beetlejuice, that, okay, yes, you're being very weird, but I believe it and I feel it and I understand where you're going with it. And there's actual heart and I, I, I felt like that worked. Whereas something like this, eh, yeah, it it's just weirdness for weirdness sake. I mean, I, yeah. and I also don't think the film has a whole lot to say about parenthood and, and marriage and how being a celebrity can affect all that that hasn't been done before that's yeah. kind of, that's kind of what really soured me more than anything is like yeah i see the points that you're trying to make but you know even something just like a star is born just did that really well recently yeah. and yeah. yeah it was but i think the film is essentially about control you know and Henry wants to control his wife, but he can barely connect to her to the point where she falls for that, you know, uh, conductor, a companionist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then he wants to control his daughter's career. And, but obviously he can't and just ends up this, you know, ends up as a lost soul. And I, I, I can see where you're going with that final scene. The little girl that shows up in flesh and blood mm -hmm. as the daughter towards the end is really great in that yeah. scene really yeah. really great yeah and i kept thinking i wish <laughs> again like you said though it wouldn't have worked i just kind of wish that she would have been more of a character as opposed to just popping up at the very end because she's so good in that moment and I that's mean, that's the emotion i was hoping for to feel throughout the entire movie the, like part of the thing that i noticed in my in my theater because i did get to see this in a theater was there were a lot of times where that baby shows up and people laugh because it's just so absurd, mm. you know, and, and that's the thing is what they're actually going for is not absurdity. What they're going for here is grand tragedy. Yes. In the life of this child and her mother and this connection that just will never be like, you know, we see Anne um, after she dies, you know, talking to Henry again, saying, I'm going to haunt you. There's a long time where she's not really haunting him and he's not really getting he because he's basically a sociopath, basically because he's a sociopath <laughs> and he's not connecting in a human level to his child and to his associates the way that any normal human would he is not actually haunted even when that baby starts to sing you know he's only ever just trying to push down the truth and it never lands like there are lots of movies out there incredible movies where we don't relate or empathize with the with the main character because they're just they're so deplorable but the film gives us something else to latch to and i think maybe that's the real tragedy of using a puppet as a baby is you know good try guys but we cannot latch onto a puppet no and you know it's it's an interesting idea uh, in theory but in execution it just kind of falls flat and yeah. you know even the same with just this character and i again like i love adam driver i will watch him sing in, <laughs> in any capacity i don't blame this on any of the actors involved no, no. The, like this is a this is a writing problem <laughs> Yeah, and there's, there's like this dissonance. I don't know, maybe there wasn't this sort of uh, collaborative good match between Carax and Sparks. I don't know. I mean, I talked to a friend of mine who's a huge Sparks fan, and uh, you know, she mentioned there is a lot of tragedy in their music. It's not. I mean, there's well, certainly sure. a lot of energy and, and 
a, a lot of upbeat music and they have a great playful sense of humor throughout, but they do sing a lot, a lot of songs about loneliness and mm-hmm. feeling detached from the world and things like that. So it makes sense that there's that element to this sort of opera that they wanted to create here. Yeah. But I think that they got really focused on their vision and maybe didn't think, well, how is this going to play to everybody else? And I realize not every artist is going to even do that or set aside the fact they just want to make what they want to make yeah. and just hope it connects to a, an audience. But I almost feel like they didn't try to, to really connect with the audience in the same way that uh, Henry, you know, is kind of disconnected as a comedian. He just wants to do his thing and spout bile at people and, not even thinking at certain points of how he's going to connect in the same way that maybe Anne does with her opera, you know, yeah. and, and a father and a husband. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, he's he certainly, he's certainly not taking any vows. You mentioned the music and I did want to talk about that because I think that's, that's one of the first things that's going to throw a lot of people is for a musical. This does not have a whole lot of real true numbers. This mm. has got a lot of singing, but, you know, aside from that opening number that we talked about off the top, aside from so shall, so maybe start, there is not a whole lot in this that's going to get stuck in your head, including we love each other so much. Well, just that refrain is stuck in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, could, I can give you those those words over and over. What did you think of the actual music in this movie? Mm, disappointed. I, <laughs> I was really, really disappointed. Again, that's because I just, I mean, I, I do wonder if I hadn't watched the Sparks documentary because I not I haven't been that familiar with them overall. Like no, I've, heard, I've heard a few songs here and there and certainly um, knew about them. I just never really dove into their discography in any way and didn't realize how how mammoth it was. And then I see this documentary and I'm kind of like, wow, they 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 seem like a, a, an upbeat, great pair. <laughs> and. I, I, I guess that sort of soured my expectations or just changed the way I viewed this movie in a way to where I'm like, there's some, there is something that's not working right, as opposed right. to this moment in um, Guy Madden's The Forbidden Room, mm-hmm. where they, they have a song in that that just works beautifully and you got Udo Kier in that sequence and it's just so delightful and weird and I guess maybe I, th- I I wanted maybe that Guy Madden weirdness to accompany their music too I think he might have been a better director and I understand why they want I mean you know you watch something like Holy Motors and you go hmm I want to work with this guy because he's got yeah. some interesting ideas especially since he does know how to mix humor with melancholy throughout that entire movie, like one minute you might want to cry because there's a death scene. And then another moment you're like laughing and smiling and enjoying what you're seeing. But like I said, it didn't necessarily come together. And the same goes for this, where there are definite moments where I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. And then I kind of go, Hmm, I don't know. I just wish there was more. I hate when people, rag on this movie, but I'm about to. Um, I think about Bohemian Rhapsody, and I think about how Queen's music is so dramatic. 
mm-hmm. and so operatic and just lends itself so bloody well to spectacle. And you take all of that spectacle and you turn in a mundane movie. Um, Sparks music generally, like their 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 catalog, they're very like you say, they're very, very, very deep catalog, lends itself so amazingly to spectacle. But here we still have the visual spectacle in a lot of ways, you know, with the storm and with the performances and with the opera and so on and so on. It it feels like the spectacle came at the cost of the music. I could probably have turned in a mixtape of spark songs and said, here, make a musical out of this because the music is (laughs) so much better. Like even, you know, even right down to we love each other so much. Like they've got a song like that. That probably would have worked really, really well, where it's just one line over and over and over and over and over. But yet we get this weird, maudlin, gray, uh, gross mishmash of songs that are just, unfortunately, and this is a word I hate to use about any band, let alone a band like Sparks, deeply, deeply forgettable. I know, and that's really surprising given what we saw in the documentary and their catalog because I was like, wow, that song stuck in my head and that song stuck in my head. I love, I can't wait to make my Spotify playlist of Spark songs now. Yeah, 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 <laughs> and, exactly. And, and with this movie, I'm like, oh, I, I wouldn't do that with this movie per se. I wonder if it, did they just like maybe intentionally and and i don't know if they were just you know twirling their mustache and going let's subvert their expectations because they might expect one thing but let's do something (laughs) it's almost like what with tarantino did with the hateful eight where it's like i'm gonna do the 70 millimeter roadshow widescreen spectacle and (laughs) set it in a cabin right right right. uh maybe i mean you know they they do seem to like to do things mostly just to amuse themselves so it's entirely possible that this was just their little christmas play that they've always wanted to put on every year when when the male family gets together um but i don't i don't want to like i don't think they're that subversive I admire some of what they were trying to do. Like I admire some of what they're trying to say about, um, you know, terrible parenting and selfishness and toxic masculinity. And let's get real. They were trying to say this stuff years before the rest of us caught up. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate part is the rest of us caught up. Yeah. Maybe it's just bad timing. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, you know, I want them to do another one that that's, that's the thing is like nobody involved in this movie, like from the cast to the, to the director, to the male brothers. I don't really think any of them like need to like go sit for time out for a while. Like I'm, I'm really impressed that everybody brought their a game to this, you know, C game. I even want them all to work together again, because I bet you they've got another project. That's a better project that would, be a lot more for the times we find ourselves in. I think you're right on that. Um, I don't know if that'll happen per se. No, well, yeah. I, well, I, yeah. I, I still think there's. I want. I want weird musicals. I know. Yeah, that. me too. I would yeah, love yeah. that. I would love I, more. I of that. I want musicals that are not already based on. Like it's crazy because I want stage musicals that are not based on movies, and I want movie <laughs> musicals that are not already based on stage plays. It, it's I, you know I feel like there's a lot more story out there to be told. And I mean the thing is, it wasn't even really that expensive of a movie to be entirely honest. It's just mm-hmm. not going to make any bank. Besides the fact that right now no movies are making any bank. Um, it's just this is not going to bring them in. So this like this really was. Every everybody getting together for the love of the game. And I guess it, it like 
I should not be saying this because for a movie I did not care for, I should want all of these people to go to opposite corners of the sandbox and never play (laughs) together again. But the reality is I actually very much do want everybody to play together in the sandbox again. Yeah, give it another try, perhaps. I mean, the uh, I think the only other thing I thought about, really, it's a strange comparison to make. And again, I'm going back to a documentary, but um, I, I caught up with the Billie Eilish documentary that came out, I believe, just on Apple TV or something. Yeah, I still haven't seen that. That's been it's there's there's no rush because it's right there on my TV. Yeah, and it's and it's pretty great as okay. someone who didn't really have a whole lot of familiarity with her music too that's another case of wow i am yeah. sold 100 percent. and just watching her rise to stardom so quickly and suddenly there are so many puppet strings being attached to her from all different walks of life not necessarily yeah. her parents thank god but no just like so many expectations placed upon her at a very vulnerable time when your brain is still developing the experience of watching that two hour plus documentary made me feel way more than this movie in a a fictional narrative did yeah yeah i get get what you mean like there and you know the, the unfortunate thing is that you know a fictional story like annette or a star is born and you know even real life stories like what we saw with michael jackson what we continue to see with um with britney spears what we saw Mm. with with whitney houston um they they will keep on happening because the entertainment industry is very very vicious at the best of times and when you add family into the mix it can get really really messy really really quick um To the point where this movie, you know, back to what actually happens on the screen, um, it leads all to this really vicious conclusion. Um, This unexpected, um, dark, like pitch black, vicious conclusion that should be up there with some of the best movie movie conclusions ever. Like this is, that is one hell of a reveal at the end of this movie, it's not exactly what I call a twist. Mm-hmm. It's just everything has been building to this moment, and the you know the the pin finally drops. Um, the unfortunate part is it's just been such a long walk to get there. Yeah, that by the time we get to that revelation, that concert, and then to that you know that really dark denouement. Um, I, I I hesitate to say we don't care, but we're just so spent that it doesn't hit us with both barrels the way it should. Yeah, I was really surprised, you know, because any sort of scene involving um, a father and it could be a son or a daughter sort of confronting something or finally revealing their true feelings I usually really go for those moments, even if it's a couple of monologues. When they sing that duet, it should be really powerful and it should really just sink into you. And unfortunately, I think it's because I wouldn't say, like you said, I stopped caring. Uh, I just felt a, a strong disconnect at that point and wish... I did care more and I certainly think the performances are strong. I, I like the intention. I like the idea of, you know, the, the, this puppet is suddenly a real person. And then 
she becomes an, a puppet again at the very yeah. final moment. It, it, I, I like what it's trying to say, but it's even, like a weird, it's like, it's like a weird, like Pinocchio wink. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And, and, you know, the sad crushing realization that he's destined to be alone and for his sins and transgressions, that all makes sense to me. But at the very, like one of the very final moments is almost like him practically looking at the camera and saying something like don't look at me anymore or yeah. don't don't watch me or whatever and i'm like all right yeah. <laughs> I, I guess yeah. I, I i won't because i didn't really care about what you're going through and you no. you you dug your own hole dude <laughs> yeah and that and that's the thing like you know don't get me wrong like this this movie does not want us to sympathize or empathize with henry mchenry like that is like to, to this movie's credit that is not what it is out to do um but it's it's like what are we supposed to feel daddy kills people should be a line that's like right up there with some of the best lines in movie history like that really yeah. truly in, in, in a movie that sticks its marks that line should land and yet it really doesn't you know it's just like oh shit into this cold confrontation that is at in, in in so many ways dark tragic and beautiful but in other ways just we're waiting just to breathe again and get out of the theater because this movie has smothered us for two hours and 15 minutes and i feel terrible that i feel this way because there's there's so much in this movie where i can see everybody just trying so hard to do something so original at a time where so little is this original. Yeah. The pieces of this puzzle just don't fit into not only a pretty picture, but just a picture that I want to look at more than once. And it's not fair to this movie that I, you know, I saw a movie where pretty much every weird choice or every unusual thing it attempted to do felt so successful and consistent to me with the green Knight. Yeah. Where that that's a movie where I felt instant love when it was over. And oh, yet yeah. I, and yet I understand why people don't too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. With another, you know, with another like wild ending, that's the thing. Like here's two yeah. movies that have wild endings and that are, you know, both very avant-garde, but one of them, it does what it sets out to do. And the other one just keeps on missing and takes us on this weird, wild ride. Uh, we could be here for a while talking about this. And I mean, you know, there, there's still things that we barely scratch. Like Marion Cotillard is, is giving it her best, even though she's not really given a whole lot. You know, Simon Helberg, he does what he does. A lot of times he's just kind of pushed over to the side, but he's actually got to do an awful lot of pathos and and kind of be our conscience in the middle of this movie. Yeah, um, he had but, a nice moment with, with um, Annette. You know, yeah. the, the playing. I like the recontextualizing of "We Love Each Other" so much, like how it changes oh, as things yeah. get darker. So oh I yeah, like it's, it's 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 lovely. But you know, again, we we were we were wandering through the muck to get there, and then after that little moment of brightness, we go right back to the muck. That's the movie. The movie is it's walking along this really really pretty dock and beautiful sun shining on your face, and then you just get to the end of the dock and you've got to start walking through the muck yeah. you know after that opening number um we end every matinee cast review with a souvenir something tangible or intangible if you could take away from this movie and keep you would um jim leskowski it might be hard but what would be your souvenir from this movie well it's it's kind of easy because i just want the recording studio at the beginning because <laughs> yeah. i'm a musician and uh, you know hey t i'll take the backing band as well and we can go and jam and write a song and march out into the streets i that, that would make me happy 
I, I like <laughs> this moment, idea a lot. And that moment made me very happy indeed. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, no and I like that. The, and I like that the director is there at the controls with his daughter. That's yeah. his real life daughter. I think that's sweet. Uh, that yeah. whole opening is great. Yeah, so. no, it's it, it's wonderful, and I did I did love the idea of of, of being in a in a studio. Well, it's funny because my uh, my takeaway is actually something similar uh, but just on the other side of the production um there's a lot of times in this movie where uh, there are scenes of live concerts and i really want to go to a live concert again oh, um, yes. oh, yes. <laughs> it's it's been over a year now for me uh there is a chance that in between now and my next episode I will be going to a concert, but the way things are going, I really don't know. Um, you'll actually appreciate this because if everything comes to pass, I will be going to see Julian Baker before the next episode. I, I was just going to say the same thing. Well, here's in a hoping month, in a month's time. Yeah, I have here's tickets. hoping that we both get to see her. You have a better chance than I do. Cause there was a border in the way with my, in my case, ah, but yeah. I, that was the thing, seeing all of these live performances, seeing these operas and these comedy shows and these concerts. I was like, I really want to be in an audience again sometime soon, because that is very much where I feel alive and very much where I feel at peace. Um, you know, I don't go to church much anymore. That's really where I go to worship is to, is to see live music. Um, that's my takeaway is, 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 is to be in a live audience. Again, we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars, Jim Leskowski, Leo Karaksanet. What do you got? It's tough. I'm, I'm torn between two and 2.5. Yeah. I think it's an ambitious, audacious swing and a miss. Yeah, I want to recommend it. I want to get behind it. I want to champion it so bad, but I just have all these reservations that we we brought up. And yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick. To, I'm gonna be nice and just go two point five and be right in the middle with okay, this. Okay, I'll I'll take your two. I'll I'll give it a two because you know, like if somebody told me they liked it, somebody told me they enjoyed it, I would understand because as I said, it's as as we said, it's just it's got so much going on. Um, it's just when it comes to a movie like this. I, I believe that it lives and dies on an emotional level, um, whether the story makes sense or not, whether the songs make sense or not. It's just it, a, a movie like this is designed to make you feel. And I did not like how I felt at the end of this. But I would understand if somebody else, like we were saying at the beginning of the show about fear and about laughter, I would understand if this made somebody else feel something very different but it did not make me feel something that i i really can articulate that i can really uh, relate to so for that i gotta give it a two hey maybe you're one of these people who loved this movie maybe you hated this movie and you can't believe that we've been talking about it this long let me know ryan at the matinee.ca twitter where i am matinee underscore ca or Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. What did you think of Leo Carax and Sparks Annette? We are going to take a very quick break and uh, come back right after this with the other side. So uh, come join us. We're back. He's Jim Laskowski. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Matt Nacast 268, the conclusion of yet another season of this wonderful little outlet that I get to lord over and bring my friends by to talk about movies for a little while. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Sparks and Leo Carax, Annette, 
Um, this is the part of the show where we go on to some further reading. I think in this case, we can both say some better reading. Jim, why don't you get us started, sir? What do you got that somebody could go on to um, after watching Annette? I have two that I would say succeed a little bit better than Annette when trying out the sort of unconventional take on a musical. Okay. And give me, same, give me one. At the same time, it's funny because like I love the music and mostly like the director. But I think this movie is very, very challenging, and which is why I almost put it in the only watch once category, and that would be Lars von Trier's Dancer in the Dark. We have the same other side. I knew it. I just had this feeling <laughs> we'd be on the same page with this one. Yep. So I do believe this was a blind spot for me back in the day. Um, 2000 movie. I had not seen it for a very, very long time. I knew Bjork was in it when it first arrived. I didn't even know who Lars von Trier was. I knew about like her Oscar performance in the swan dress (laughs) and Tom York uh, writing some of the songs. That was all I knew. Um, but then I, a few years ago, I finally saw this movie proper and I, you know, I I don't know if this is where you're going with it, but this is where I'm going to go with it is this is a movie that does a lot of what Annette wants to do, but it sticks its landing. Exactly. Yeah. And just like the, the, the way the musical sequences change in terms of cinematography and even just the fact that like a faucet drip will mm-hmm. send her into musical land. Yeah. Just I, I relate to that too. Like when I hear a rhythm of something, I wouldn't start singing and dancing no, <laughs> wherever but, I'm at, but I, I, when I hear a rhythm of something, I kind of go bah, 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 or something, you know, like yeah. I hear something in my head and that's also, you know, it happens to be, how musicians minds work in general is that you could just be doing something mundane and suddenly you'll hear something and it comes to you. And that's, I related to that very much. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to watch Bjork go through what she goes through in this movie. And, uh, I, I, I imagine it was very challenging to work with this director as if memory serves, she might've even said that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, she's, she's made, she's made mention as much. Like, I mean, this is this is something where uh, you know the the work that was created now has this kind of shadow cast mm-hmm. over it because stories are coming to light about like what it, what it took to get there, and you know kind of like what we're saying with how the world changed around Annette in between it being written and and it coming to fruition is that you know we realize a lot of things that it was putting out there into the world as this is not okay you know like the whole world is saying this is not okay. And it's affecting our relationship with the art. I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but it's it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And it's one thing to say, you know, here is this artist who is a terrible human being, but they put incredible things out into the world either before they were a terrible human being or before we really knew they were a terrible human being or before we could all accept that what they had done was without argument terrible. That's one challenge that we face another challenge that we are facing is we learn that something was created that we enjoy and we find beautiful and we learn that the creation of it was a terrible experience for someone and it's like 
what do you do with that? It's it's not the same as saying this artist is is terrible but brilliant. It's here is somebody who is terrible and brilliant, and they were terrible to somebody in the name of creating their brilliance. That all, it all goes back to Stanley Kubrick and Shelley Duvall. Yeah, because I oh I'm sure I'm so like, torn by that so yeah. much. Yeah, because you know oh. there's there's tons of I'm, I'm sure there's tons of Hitchcock movies that oh, we could yeah. wrap that yeah. around. You know, there, there's tons and tons and tons. For all we know, Leo da Vinci was a dick to Mona Lisa. This is like I mean, this is the thing. So, Dancer in the Dark, it's an incredible movie. It's a movie that I think a lot of people should see, and that unfortunately has not been seen near enough. But yet at the same time, now when I try to go like talk to somebody about it, I'm going to be like, but, you know, he was really shitty towards Bjork when he did it. So it's 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 this weird thing. But let like, you know, just the story itself and what it does, um, it does so much of what Annette wants to do and nails its marks. It's a it's it's an unconventional musical. It doesn't really have a whole lot of like happy humming toe tapping songs and it's about a dark subject yeah and it's got great great bjork songs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i remember listening to the music just like i would any regular bjork album and just kind of going oh this is beautiful and yeah majestic yeah and operatic and symphonic and when you have somebody like tom york singing backup vocals with you how can you go wrong and when i first saw it with my girlfriend at the time and I, we couldn't move out of our seats when this was over because we were so affected by it. And yes, it is a huge downer. And, you know, again, you probably do a whole other podcast. I don't need to give myself other projects to do (laughs) at this moment in time, but yeah, going back and watching experiences um, just based on what we know now is really fascinating. And certainly even going back and listening to something like Weezer's Pinkerton or looking at the lyrics and going, oh, my God, mm-hmm. I had no idea of what he was saying about young underage girls and yeah. being attracted to them and being yeah. OK with it at the time. It's such a yeah. weird feeling. But yeah. no, Dancer in the Dark <laughs> is might be my favorite Lars von Trier movie. Might I be. don't think that. Yeah, I don't think that's such a bad thing to say. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's not exactly like he's got like a whole bunch of happy. It might be his happiest movie, to yeah. be entirely honest. Probably uh, it has uplifting moments, you yeah. know, for sure. And I, yeah, I mean, I do have a a love for Melancholia too, but this one's right up there. Yeah, I, I think between the two, I'd probably rather watch this again than Melancholia. Melancholia, I could I could have that on in the background and on mute just to look at the pretty pictures. Oh yeah, but this is the, this is the one that I actually want to listen to. All right, well we 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 had this one in common, so why don't you take the conk again? And what is your other movie that you've got on the other side well, uh, besides Dancer in the Dark? Well, one I recommend every bit as much is a film that definitely turned the musical on its ear at the time and it's the woefully underrated steve martin film from 1981 called pennies from heaven and the only reason i actually caught up with this was because i knew um a film critic named amy nicholson who i read and would listen to on various podcasts she cited this as her favorite movie and i kind of went okay well i'm curious i should I love Steve Martin. I should probably watch this. And when I finally caught up with it, I was bl- kind of blown away by it. Um, but again, it's very odd. They ma- mainly just lip sync a bunch of songs from the 20s and 30s depression era. And it's like they're all going through the worst period of their lives. Obviously, it's a depression, so it makes sense. <laughs> uh, but 
they escape very similar to like what Bjork does in Dancer in the Dark. They escape into these magical, majestic musical numbers that they've heard from, you know, other films of that era or other soundtracks. Uh, and like Steve Martin's trained for six months learning how to tap dance. Huh. Uh, and there's an amazing dance number involving Christopher Walken. That's kind of worth the price of admission alone. Okay. Uh, and he's well, now of, you're speaking my language. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's funny because it is like being in a bumper car. And I feel like all, <laughs> I feel like all three of these movies are that to some degree, because at one moment you're kind of euphoric and the next moment you're kind of depressed. Okay. Uh, and this movie is kind of like that, but again, more consistent, more engaging. I think it's interesting to see Steve Martin play a sociopath especially this early in his career when he was doing these outlandish comedies by Carl Reiner. So I think it's just a really big leap of a really bold turn for him to do something like this at the time. And I think that's why it flopped completely. (laughs) (laughs) Why nobody's talking about it just because they don't want to see Steve Martin as a sociopath. Well, Uh, the same for the same reason though, that when you get to the eighties, like, audiences were just tired of the musicals. Like I, I mm-hmm. think that's, that's a strange thing to say in a year where we are going to get like possibly more musicals in one year than we have got in at least 30 years. Um, it, it, like any one single year in 30 years, I don't think have ever had as many musicals as we're going to get this year. Um, you know, for, for the combination of scheduling and circumstances, uh, pennies from heaven in this era where audiences were just really worn out on it and not wanting to watch them all that much more. You had huge flops in this era. Like one from the heart was in this time. Xanadu was in this time. And these are movies that a lot of people are trying to recontextualize and, and say, you know, Hey, this was actually a lot better than we think. We just weren't ready for it at the time. Um, Ishtar is like that. Like a lot of people want to really give Elaine may much more credit for what she got out of Ishtar than, than what was, you know, happening at the time. But Pennies from Heaven, which I have not seen, but I'm now very curious about because of everybody involved and how you sell it. Uh, it's got the tagline, there's a world on both sides of the rainbow where the songs come true. And every time it rains, it rains. Yes. Like, what? That's a great, what? That's a crazy <laughs> great way to sum- summarize that movie. Oh that. my God. Yeah. yeah like, there, okay. but again, like when it's raining outside, they just sort of close their eyes and go off and enjoy the sunshine in their head <laughs> in My their spotless God. mind. Maybe you might say, but yeah. ah, I see what you did there. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I, I bet you five bucks when we're done here, I'm going to go have a conversation, uh, you know, and, and find out that this is a movie that I should have seen by now. Um, or, or for all I know, we're about to get treated to an incredible movie night. And, and I've just discovered something that, that uh, Lindsay did not know about. I think that's kind of the theme of this whole episode is, weird musicals and sometimes they land and sometimes they don't, but you really just kind of got to tip your hat to the audacity of it. Like, like, like we were saying with Annette, you know, like neither one of us likes it, but we like that it exists. Yes, for know? sure. Yeah. Not, uh, not everything is going to be Phantom of the Paradise or the Muppet movie, you know? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, my final other side, um, I decided to go kind of what we were talking about with the theme of child stars and what happens when parenting can get a little bit off kilter. And uh, I went all the way back to 1962 to the camp 
classic, the psychological horror classic, uh, directed by Robert Aldrich, uh, starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Good stuff. Thank you. So if anybody has never seen this movie, it's about two sisters. They were child stars and one of them has become an invalid. The other is just flat out weird. And it is Betty Davis acting her ass off and just being so dark and so violent and so vicious and so damn strange. It opens with a number that you watch now and you're like, this is messed up. You know, when you're, (laughs) when you're watching this child sing this number, it's like, there are some kind of tones in this song that I don't know if they were, if this is what they meant in 1930 something, whenever this number was supposed to be set, but they really mean something now. Um, and what she has become to, you know, like the, the light just burnt out and, you know, I watch Annette and the one thing I came away with from Annette is she would not be baby Jane. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that, that child was either lucky enough or smart enough or both to stop the runaway train before it really rode off the rails. And that she is probably still doomed to a a rather dark life that she's going to have to work on a lot of things for a very long time, but she is not at least going to end up as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as baby Jane is in this movie. No kidding. But man, what can you say about those eyes? You know, right? and everything about these two performances, it, you watch and you go, this is, this is acting. And I'm like, even if it's operatic and over the top, I'm all for it. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. And, like both, both Crawford and Betty Davis just go uh, for it in yes. this movie. Like, like Joan Crawford is like, she's actually playing like the more subdued part. Like if this is a comedy duo, she's the straight man. But still, every time that she has to act fraught or, you know, just overwhelmed by how nuts her sister's gotten. And I'm, you know, I'm using words that I don't usually like to use, but this is a, this is a movie that is not meant to play any of this seriously. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a movie that is just over the line at every single turn, but yet it, it lands like, again, like what we're talking about with dancer in the dark it hits its marks and it becomes this classic that is still like you know weird years later like it's not it's not exactly what you'd call scary and it's certainly not what you'd call like an engaging drama it's it's all it's almost pushing cult but it's just it everything it sets out to do it does yeah i i I forget which director mentioned that the majority of work involved with directing is tone management. Yes. Yes. And I just feel like, yeah, these movies that we we've highlighted are just way more consistent and they know how to manage a tone that eventually works its way into you. And you sort of just get really wrapped up and involved in a way that is emotionally satisfying, even if dark stuff is happening throughout. And I, I, I really do have a visceral reaction to movies about codependence and mm-hmm. people really trying to control another person. I just, it, it, it just sends shivers down my spine to watch somebody go through something like that. But yeah. at the same time, yeah, it is over the top and 
some do pe- people do consider it to be kind of a cult classic now and in this black comedy kind of a manner and yet it all works yeah and i mean you know like kind of like the people who in my audience were laughing anytime the puppet came through there are people who would watch how betty davis acts in this movie and they'll laugh mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right because it's it's like this is this is not funny but what she's doing is just so crazy that all you can do the first time you see this especially larger than life in a dark room and a bright screen is just laugh at it and now you make me want to do a Robert Aldridge Directors Club. Enjoy. That's what I'm here for. I'm basically just here to stoke your projects while I go on break. <laughs> there we go. That is episode 268 of the Matinee Cast. I'm so thankful that Jim dropped by. Um, as I mentioned on the introduction of the show, we're going to be back during TIFF with at least one audio postcard. Hopefully a few. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what TIFF is going to bring really and truly because it seemed like a whole other beat just one short month ago but um we're gonna try to create some content for you the whole podcast proper will return for a new season at the beginning of october i don't know what we're going to talk about yet but there's a lot of great movies coming out at the end of september beginning of october um hey we might talk about a musical because there's a few of them coming in september and october so come on back we uh you know we might have more songs to talk about Jim uh, is all over the place. He's on Voices and Visions. He's producing the Directors Club. Uh, do you got anything coming up that you want to plug? Well, I think uh, the next Directors Club will be very interesting because we're talking about a classic action director named John Sturgis, Ooh. who uh, came up quite a bit in Quentin Tarantino's novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I got a I got an expert on westerns and old school Hollywood. Uh, named Sergio Mims, and he's really, really smart. He's been on the show before and mainly talks about older directors. Probably could do a great episode on Robert Aldridge. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm really excited for that episode. And, uh, yeah, you know, over on uh, Letterboxd at uh, Jim Laskowski now, and that's L-A-C-Z-K-O-W-S-K-I. Very nice. I'll include all kinds of links for people if they want to find you. Uh, And if people want to follow you on on the Twitters, where can they find you? I believe that is also the same name, isn't it? My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in the usual places, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Apple, Pocket Cast, Blueberry, and some new places. Tune in, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. As I always say, if you're using a platform that I have not used or that I have not mentioned, please let me know. I'll put my show there. It's super simple. Feedback on Annette. I'd love to talk to people about Annette. Can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email Ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, Mr. Laskowski? We love to podcast so much. I didn't get you to do a song for this one. I should have. I really, I mean, yeah. Mm, I've, I've been slacking on that department lately. I, I feel like like that's a, that's the thing. I feel like that's a big ask. Like I'm getting you on. You're braving a storm. I feel like I'm just like pushing my luck just that little wee bit with yeah. with asking you for a song. I'm glad it didn't rain so hard that I drowned. dear god get me out of here get me to tiff and get me to my new home for jim i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee